Content warning. Discussions of violence, torture and death that some people may find disturbing. Welcome to the Newcastle Witches podcast. This is episode four, Witch John. This episode is dedicated to Mary Potts. After the petition to try witches in Newcastle was successful, two sergeants were sent into Scotland to bring a witch pricker to the sea. Ralph Gardner writes... When the sergeants had brought the said witchfinder on horseback to town, the magistrates sent their bellman through the town, ringing his bell and crying, All people that would bring in any complaint against any woman for a witch, they should be sent for and tried by the person appointed. Henry Ogle contested that one of the women was not a witch, as she was a personal and good-like woman. The witch pricker said she was, for the town said she was, and therefore he would try her. Thirty women were brought to the town hall to be tried by the witch pricker. 27 of them were found guilty. After this, the witch pricker left Newcastle and went to Northumberland to try witches there, but Henry Ogle was suspicious and went after the witch pricker as he was not certain he was true. Ralph Gardner then says, The said witch finder was laid hold on in Scotland, cast into prison, indicted, arraigned and condemned for such like villainy exercised in Scotland, and upon the gallows he confessed he had been the death of above. 220 women in England and Scotland for the gain of 20 shillings apiece and beseeched forgiveness. He was executed. But who is the witch pricker? Why is his name never mentioned in the records and why is Ralph Gardner's account the only one we have detailing his crimes? Welcome back to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for joining us today. For this episode, we are joined by Katie Ledane, who is going to talk to us about the notorious Scottish witch pricker. Katie Ledane is completing her PhD at Northumbria University with funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council via the Heritage Consortium. Her research concerns the history and heritage of witch trials in the northeast of England from 1649 to 1673, starting with the Newcastle witch hunt of 1649-50 and the Derwendale accusations of 1673. Her thesis then traces the legacies of these largely forgotten cases through 19th century folklore collections into fictionalisations and tourist attractions. Hi Katie. Hi Caitlin. <laughs> Hi Katie. <laughs> so, Katie has been someone who's kind of been involved in this since the beginning. She was someone I met kind of early on and chatted to, and she's been very incredibly helpful with the research and kind of reading into the trials and everything. So, thank you, first of all, Katie, for like bringing that over to us because I'm not sure how we would have got some of the information or known where to look if you hadn't have helped out. No, I'm happy to. I'm happy that it's the, the trials are being talked about kind of more publicly outside of my thesis and um, journal articles and things. That was kind of why I started my PhD. I wanted the child to be recognised locally and nationally. So just wondering, isn't quite linked to what we're going to go into this episode, but like, how did you hear about the trials? Like, what was your beginning with it? Um, it was actually through my PhD supervisor, Claire Nally. Um, she was my master supervisor as well. And uh, I saw an article with her photograph in the Newcastle Chronicle, I think it was. Yeah. Um, typically, it was around Halloween. And um, she's she's a goth. <laughs> but I don't really know how to put that more delicately. But because of that, I think the um, photographer for the Chronicle saw his opportunity and has a like standing looking um foreboding in the St Andrew's churchyard. I know exactly which article you're talking about. Yeah, I think it's one of the first things that comes up when you put in Newcastle Witches. Yeah. And because Claire's um, research isn't really in the area of um, witchcraft or, uh, yeah, it's not really in the area of witchcraft. She's not really pursued it in as much depth as I have in my thesis. Um, But yeah, that's what kind of set me off looking into it and my masters had been in um dark tourism and early modern women's history as well so it was quite easy to kind of take what I'd learned there and build on it for my PhD and kind of once I'd got interested in the story I couldn't let it go so <laughs> seems to be how it is kind of with the anyone who starts to hearing about different witch trials it seems like once they start you could all kind of stop you just kind of keep going 
And that's what happened down. to Caitlin. Yeah. <laughs> she would just vanish for hours when she was meant to be, I don't know, working on something. And be like, what are you doing? I'm, thinking, I'm reading about witches. <laughs> um, Katie, so if you don't mind me asking, um, so what is a witch pricker um, for our listeners? So a witch pricker is a title um, would have been used like fairly interchangeably with witch finder, but it, um, looking at it from today, it actually does go a bit more specific than that. And it is kind of a role that it does what it says on the tin. It's someone who pricks witches. The pricking refers to the testing of the devil's mark on the witch's body. From records, we're like fairly sure that it would have been um, moles, warts, uh, extra nipples, things like that, that were interpreted as um, a kind of physical manifestation of the pact with the devil. And this would be, in a lot of cases, the point at which the witch is familiar, uh, which was an animal that was kind of the embodiment of the devil's power that he was sharing with the witch would feed from her. So that's why in records it's some, sometimes referred to as a teat of kinds too. And the logic with pricking it, usually with um, what's called a bodkin, which is a kind of medical pin from the period that would usually be used to kind of pop blisters and boils and things like that. Oh. Um, yeah, the pin would be inserted into the devil's mark with the logic that if it was a devil's mark and if this person was a witch, it wouldn't bleed because the devil was protecting um, that source of power. Right. But obviously we know sometimes when you kind of prick marks and that like that, they don't necessarily bleed. Yeah, especially when they can be kind of insensitive, like, um, or not have much blood supply, like certain like warts and skin tags and things like that. And um, there's also speculation that the witch finder might have either um, not been putting the pin into the skin at all, or um, we have evidence in Scotland of uh, retractable pins. Yeah. So as you um, push the pin against the skin, um, it's not actually sharp, but the, the handle of the bodkin moves and takes the pin inside instead. So it looks like it's going like a few inches into the body and no, there's no bleeding happening. And obviously two people um, observing this from like far back in a court setting, that looks physically impossible. Yeah. Um, that there's something supernatural going on. Yeah, kind of like fake knives in films where they can push into the handle that we have today. It's the same kind of idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So actually... Uh, um, not to give away the tricks of the trade, but at Newcastle Castle, the tours there, um, a couple of the volunteers actually used those joke um, prop knives where it goes into the handle to kind of illustrate the point. So, oh, okay. Quite, yeah, <laughs> kind of hit the nail on the head there was like quite a clear example of how we kind of show that today. Okay. Um, so just as well, um, was it always like a witch's mark that they were pricked into or could it be like another like something else it would be the witch's mark that they were looking for yeah yeah um so yeah by and large they would they would look for anything that they could call um an unusual or unnatural mark on the body say that this is possibly a witch's mark and that's what they would be using pricking to test for right just because obviously in the in newcastle trials they he lifted the skirts so he was obviously looking for ones oh yeah yeah so um yeah there is the trend in as cases escalate in a kind of regional or local setting and as witch hunting peaked in the early 1640s, there is an observable trend of them being in increasingly more intimate places. Right. So you'll see records of them being um, referenced to as like the um, secret parts or privy places and things like that, which kind of really intensifies both the kind of humiliation and horror of um public witch pricking, but also the kind of um, sexual undercurrents and the like very like gendered elements of witch hunting and the female body and general suspicion of what was seen at the time as the weaker, but also more sinister sex. Yeah, because women were seen as the more kind of sexual, promiscuous creatures, so. Yeah, yeah, and um, kind of not understood in the same way as male sexuality at the time kind of 
spiritually and physically weaker also meant more vulnerable to like corruptive influences i suppose yeah and that's why you see um having carnal knowledge of the devil pop up in um which cases gen witchcraft cases generally and the local cases Mm -hmm. that we're here talking about yeah i also did see at some points the devil is referred to as a man quite often or appearing as a man so especially back then if the devil's a man then the witch is probably a woman if they're you know having sex and stuff like that which i know some cases that's referred to you know witches having sex with the devil Mm -hmm. or doing sexual things with the devil so it would make sense if they're of opposite genders especially in the 17th century yeah you don't really see um sexual elements come up as much in cases of um male witches anyway so i guess one of the sort of not a rabbit hole but something that is heavily debated in lots of theories and you could end up going down a few rabbit holes is the witch pricker and if anybody does a sort of search right now on the internet there'll be a few names and a few theories banded about um we want to see if we can find out who this man was maybe not definitively but at least talk about who he could have been um and how do you get away with killing so many people well, so, it, if we believe Gardner, he didn't quite get away with it in the end. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got away with it for too long, though. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because there is a popular theory that the witch pricker for the Newcastle trials was John Kincaid. And I think that's a bit of a misconception that's floated around, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so John Kincaid um, wasn't really famous by this point. Mm. And from the impression we get from Gardner the pricker chosen for Newcastle had already got a reputation and was well known. Whereas um, John Kincaid, who ended up being like the most prolific witch pricker in Scotland, was only just starting out then. So the first case that we have that mentions him by name anyway was in July of 1649. Oh, okay. So that kind of skews the dates a bit from um, the petition that was read around the early part of the year anyway. But yeah, I think he's just kind of banded about as the most popular theory because, again, he was the most prolific Scottish witch pricker and we have him active around those dates. But I don't really think there's enough to pin it on him. It was either Joel or Claire, because I spoke to Claire really early on as well about who possibly was the witch pricker, is that he would have had to have a very fast horse. I can't remember if it was Joe or Claire. One of them said he would have had to be very quick because dates didn't quite coincide, apart from those ones as well, like... There was just too many facts against him for... He couldn't have quite been in the area. Yeah, I think geographically he was, he was further up north yeah. around the time as well. So it doesn't really... He would have had to run very fast to, yeah, get, yeah. <laughs> to get back for the actual trials and when they took place. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably not John Kincaid. <laughs> I read that there was about... Within that century, there was about 10 witch prickers and not including clergymen who were kind of running around Scotland. How true is that? <laughs> um, I'd say that's about right. I do actually have my list of candidates with me. Yes, um, let's hear them. Katie has a wonderful notebook, and I see that is a lot of, of notes <laughs> that we'd love to see. So, um, there were quite a few Scottish witchfinders active in the seventeenth century, and as you say, that's without kind of um, taking into account clergymen or people that are called in the database of um, Scottish witchcraft, they're called investigators. So narrowing it down to just people that we know were prickers, we've got John Bain, John Balfour, Alexander Boggs, George Cathy, David Cowan, Thomas Crawford, John Dick, John Kincaid, um, James Patterson and James Scobie. Yes, I think I saw all those names apart from the last James. I think I've seen all of the other ones pop up for running around at the time period yeah so it's a lot to go and chase down all of these names afterwards isn't it to narrow down who it might have been you uh you mentioned clergy and investigators sort of what qualifications did these witch prickers have were they like actual clergymen going around pricking or they have was they theological or doctors or did they just announce themselves as a witch pricker i was about to say none of the above really okay. Um, okay. it's kind right. of Operated mainly by reputation. Um, so we don't really 
we don't really get a sense for the vast majority of witch prickers out there how they started. We kind of pick up a bit like later on into their career. For example, um, Alexander Boggs, who we know who we know was active in 1649, but this is on the northwest coast of Scotland, so not really um, close to be sent for in Newcastle. Um, in records about him, he's described as being often sent for. Okay. So that's where we see it. He's already got a reputation and experience and a lot of witches on his CV, I suppose, is how would be the equivalent today. Um, but kind of the exception and a, a man that is the exception generally in the history of English witchcraft, Matthew Hopkins. Mm-hmm. He was a lawyer before. So... Um, there was kind of a more of a solid background in criminal investigation with him. Which is crazy mm. because he was quite young, wasn't he, anyway, when like he yeah, was he rising was... to his power off, eh? Yeah, he was quite young. 20s. He died at 27. Yeah. And that was like a couple of years after his witch-finding career. And he so. was a lawyer before he was... Well, I'm not sure kind of how how established he was as a lawyer, but he was kind of old enough to be a member of the legal professional oh wow <laughs> so yeah oh that's a lovely fun fact <laughs> so when you were talking about how did newcastle Witchfinder get away mm-hmm. with um killing so many people um we'll probably get into this a bit later but he claimed it was around 220 men and women across england and scotland yeah. that's reportedly what he said on the gallows before he was hanged that's a lot of that's a lot of people to kill Definitely, yeah. Um, and pro- what probably would have been a relatively short-lived career as well. So we're not talking about, like with Hopkins, we're not talking about like decades of time. We're talking about probably about three to five years. I mean, that's something we can only really speculate, but you'd have to think, like, did they get sort of pleasure from killing people? Was it a serial killer, like, who just enjoys knowing that he's you know, killing people, innocent people, like what, the motivation, I don't know, I can't believe somebody would do this just for the money, um, so it's, you know, when you hear those numbers in such a short span of time, and this person's just going around killing that many people, it's, I guess, depressing, but also just like, how did that, was it, how was it allowed to continue? I guess we've gone into that in other episodes where there wasn't really a present, a, a law present, presence of the law especially after the civil war Mm. and sort of shifts in in society but to think that somebody could kill over 200 people in that span of time is quite upsetting yeah it definitely is and i think because it is so inexplicable um people have just tried to use the money angle to understand it in a way like you hear a lot the kind of 20 shillings per witch and they just kind of explain it away in a functional sense in the same way that um people say that witchcraft accusations can be explained away through neighborly arguments and things like that but i think it goes much deeper than that so if we're if we're being generous to the newcastle witchfinder and people like hopkins and scottish witch prickers we could talk about it in terms of spiritual righteousness and him seeing him, himself as a kind of crusader against the devil mm. and a, an avenging angel, in a way, de- um, defending communities from witches, from agents of the devil. And this civil war period see, seen as sort of an apocalyptic time, visions of the end of the world and witches and demons walking the earth. So if you, if he was what we'd see today is a religious radical yeah you can interpret it in that sense that goes kind of a little bit deeper than the idea that he was just on the make but i think as you like as is often the case in history the truth is probably somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. if you even think about like the trial of when they would like float the witches and like you know if you sank then you were innocent but if you floated then you weren't innocent and you were a witch and it was well, if you died, you're going to heaven. So it's like, okay. So you can kind of see the, if they think they're doing the right thing, God would kind of intervene if they're not a witch almost. Like yeah. there seems to be a lot of that back then as well. Like 
God would intervene if they weren't doing the right thing. So if no one's intervening, then they must be doing the right thing. Yeah, it's definitely what would be like an, an unrecognisable mindset to us today. But faith was so important to these people at the time and they did believe in the kind of direct in- intervention of God and the devil in earthly matters. So like you say, if, if God wasn't preventing this was, um, from happening... And if things like harvest crises and sickness and things like that were seen to have been eased in coincidence with a witch trial, they would be interpreting that as a message. So maybe the witch finder felt that um, God was allowing him and encouraging him to succeed. We don't really have a modern day comparison for how much people like believed in religion back then, because like as a society, I don't think we have like something that we all agree on or believe in i think it's a lot more split now yeah Mm -hmm. so it's i think it's hard to imagine as a modern day person how much people believed in this back then because even if you're religious yourself in any way shape or form it's like everyone around you would be believing in the same thing and i think that's it's hard because everyone now it's like humans are famous for disagreeing with each other and not being able to agree on anything from political views to religious views and so on (laughs) yeah especially with such conviction as well to kind of see people suffering in such a way like in um witch trials like the actual trials themselves and the mass hangings and stuff and to still see that and think that a righteous thing has been done i I think would really struggle to find a parallel to that today so to go through some of the other candidates um because i did start talking about um how how could they've been allowed to get away with this for so long? Yeah. Um, that brings me on to John Balfour, um, one of the first uh, candidates in my list. Um, and I've kind of been able to rule him out because he was just asked to stop in 1632. Just asked him, they said just... Just asked by by authorities to stop pricking witches, leave them alone. Just <laughs> <laughs> He was just asked to stop and sent on his way. And that's kind of the last we really hear of him as okay. a witch pricker. And then he just kind so, of disappears. Yeah, just doesn't appear in he records. He just takes anymore. up a trade, becomes an honourable person. Yeah, straight Thanks. and narrow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, slap on the wrist and he's off. So I think that kind I of... I mean, it's extraordinary, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> At least he didn't kill more people. It's really hard to... Well, he might have. We don't yeah. <laughs> We don't really know, but... He yeah. doesn't show up on like any records anywhere else. Not he's like, well, else. I'm re- relocating then. Yeah, he might, have beco- he might have become like Patrick Belfour instead and yeah. gone on to do more. But um, but yeah, he was just asked to stop and then we lose him in the records. It's easier to kind of just run away and change your identity back then than you would yeah. now. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit easier to just, you know, cross the border and, oh, I'm a different person now. Mm-hmm. No one knows who I am here. Yeah. <laughs> So we don't think it's him. No, I'd be very surprised if it was him. Um, similarly, like David Cowan, he's not active until 1678. Um, James Patterson, up in Inverness in the 1660s. Inverness is, okay, that is quite a way, but it is on the east coast. No, it's the highlands, isn't it? It would be quite a trek. Yeah, it'd be quite far up. And I was also, when I was putting this list together, I was also thinking about um, how people in Newcastle would have heard um, of oh, this yeah, particular how, yeah. witch finder. So um, I've been factioning the distance um, in my discussions of yeah. how would they hear of him to send from in the first place. Exactly. I, I can't even imagine they would think like, oh, you know, Inverness, they have that guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's how I've been able to rule him out too. With some of the candidates, we do get a bit of an idea of how they might have become a witch finder. So for Thomas Crawford, for example, he was active in 1649 and he was operating in a town north of Edinburgh, but he was originally a witness to a confession. Okay. So he was kind of involved in the judicial process and then elevated his way up to becoming a, a witch finder himself. So almost he had the knowledge there because he'd been a witness to something prior so yeah so he kind of had a bit of credibility and kind of saw yeah how it was done perhaps Mm -hmm. so he sounds like he could be a legitimate candidate for us if he was 
like not that far away if he was just in Edinburgh. Yeah, slightly north of Edinburgh at the time is a possible um, candidate, I suppose. But again, he do, he's not kind of well known okay. in the way that we might expect the Newcastle Witchfinder to be. But we're getting a bit warmer, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, a bit closer to, to the source. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose the warmest I've gotten so far, if we just want to mention the goods, I suppose, <laughs> at this point, like the, the spiciest bit. Um, Ooh, <laughs> we like a bit of spice. <laughs> so um, Ralph Gardner, you mentioned him in the yeah. podcast with Joe Bath. So he's the most detailed account we have of the Newcastle Witches and the Newcastle Witch Finder. And he says that after the witch finder was exposed as a fraud, that he fled up into Scotland and was pursued by Henry Ogle, um, tried in a court there and hanged. But I've not been able to back that up with any of the candidates in the list. But the closest that there is, is George Cathy, who was active in 1649 and 1650. Um, he had a female assistant that was an accused witch herself. So he found himself in the um, the court of the Privy Council to deny working with an accused witch in order to detect other witches. He, Like I say, he denied that he was working with her. She was burnt and he disappears from records. Oh. So, again, we've got a disappearance from records. We don't have George Cathy was hanged for being a witch finder in Newcastle. Like, really detailed account for future historians. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we do have the the right timeline of him disappearing from records and appearing in court in Scotland for being a witch finder. Right, okay. So it's possible that Ralph Gardner, either because he was getting conflicting information or for, you know... To make his point and write a very sensational kind of report, sort of said, maybe join two stories of two different witchbreakers and was like, see, they hung him. Is it, Could that be the case? I, I think that is a possibility because you have to remember that um, Gardner was writing five years after yeah. and from um, two eyewitnesses that weren't actually witness to what happened to the witchfinder. And... Like Joe Bath mentioned, Gardner had a personal vendetta for a very good reason against um, against the council. So it would make the council look a lot worse if they'd hired a fraud on purpose. Well, not hired a fraud on purpose, but if they'd hired a fraud and Gardner was especially angry that they'd hired a Scottish fraud. Oh, wow. Um, it definitely adds that element of poetic justice if the witch finder was hanged. Mm-hmm. Shall we go back to George? Is that his name? George Cathy is the yeah the main, my main candidate anyway. I'm not saying that we have a definitive answer, but... It sounds the most likely, mm-hmm. um, especially from some of the ones I've read, where they just... I know some of them did face like some sort of punishment where they were told, stop it. But n- nothing seems to kind of coincide with what Ralph Gardner wrote. Mm, yeah, so, so others kind of received... A warning or a slap on the wrist but um i think the thing that might detract from it is that gardner didn't mention um kathy's female assistant right i think that if you if he was aware of it and if he was really going in for the kill of the newcastle council he might have mentioned that yeah but i think talking about the female assistant is an important thing to address in witchcraft history because we get this kind of idea that it's a very binary um, rich man versus poor woman. Yes. But um, it's kind of less common to have an accused witch working with you, but there were there were often female assistants or um, midwives or a jury of matrons that were employed to look for the devil's mark on the witch's body. Yes. So there's much more blurring between... Um, between the genders in terms of who is a witch and who is a witch finder. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard it before about the kind of midwives and that being asked to check for witches' marks and um, teats or nipples, as they called them. So, 
yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I think as a historian, we're kind of used to muddying the waters, I yes. suppose. So, but it's kind of understandable why a more simple binaries come into place. But I think if you're doing a deep dive like this podcast is, I think it's really good to clear up those things. Yeah, because that was something when I initially started the research that I was not quite surprised at, but kind of taken aback, I guess, by how much the media and kind of what we'd seen of it was very much it was man versus woman. And then when I started just kind of looking into it, I was like, oh, it was a lot more complicated than that. And that was even on like a surface level look. That was not even like getting really into it. And the more you get into it, the more you're like, oh, this is a very nuanced and, nuanced and complex topic. Mm-hmm. It's not just a case of it was this person versus this person. It was, oh, there's so many different factors and issues into why this happened mm-hmm. and why these people thought what they did or did what they did. And we might not agree with it or even like it or think it's right, but it's kind of understanding why things were happening. Yeah, and I think it does, looking into it deeper, obviously does make it more understandable, even, not understandable as inexcusable, but when you first are confronted with early modern witchcraft and the trials and the atrocities that are within these records, it seems so alien, almost. But when you look at that, the kind of intricacies of it and in some ways making it kind of relatable in some senses, but then so completely unrelatable and unrecognisable in others. Mm-hmm. It definitely makes you appreciate the different world that these people inhabited. Yeah. So we said there was about 10-ish witch prickers kind of running about at mm-hmm. the time. So I read that there was someone called John Dick slash John Patterson who might have been revealed to be a woman. Yeah, so I... <sighs> I think John Dick and um, Patson were two different female witch finders. Oh, okay. Because so, I was getting quite confused when yeah. I was reading about this. I was like, is it the name and they changed the name and ran off somewhere? Or is it two different people doing a very similar thing? I think as from my reading and from um, references in my research, it is two different uh, female witch finders. Okay. So um, John Dick was actually Christian Cadell or Coldwell. Um, she kind of, she plied her trade as a witch finder um, by cross-dressing. So she wasn't revealed to be a female witch finder until um, she accused a man called John Hay, who was an influential court messenger, and he had her arrested instead. And upon interrogation and investigation, they found that she was a woman and she was banished to Barbados in 1662. Mm-hmm. Um, on the day that her last victim was burnt at the stake, she was banished to Bar- Barbados at that time. Which is crazy, because you'd think that if she'd accused people and they'd found this out, that they would have stopped or maybe looked into... Yeah, wouldn't have that something like, well, maybe she's not... Maybe we should pardon well, the witch? A similar thing happens in the in the Newcastle witch trials as well. It, they work out that, or they at least have suspicions that the Newcastle witch finder was a fraud when when the he quickly dropped a skirt after pricking. Yeah, her. yeah. Um, and then after the pricking is done, he goes back up into Scotland and they let him go. They hang the witches and then investigate him. So it's not really it's almost like they were hedging their bets they were just saying like oh well we can't call people witches and then let them go so we'll hang them and if it works out you know we've done the right thing but then we'll just i'm trying god it's difficult to understand oh definitely and you can kind of see that a little bit in um in the dialogue that gardner wrote of um the court case anyway um you can see this sort of hedging of bets that might have taken place because with the with the alleged witch that um the witch finder is questioned about how can she be a witch because she's so personable and good like um the witch finder according to gardner says she is for the town says she is Mm -hmm. so he's kind of saying that he has the mandate of the town's population and she is the witch. She is a witch because the people of Newcastle say she's a witch. So 
once he's kind of ridden off into the sunset back into Scotland, the town's authorities are left with, we think this guy was a fraud, but our subjects want a hanging. Yeah, because so. it's they're not hung straight away, are they? No, no. They um we think they might have been imprisoned to await the um the travelling assizes yeah. in the summer. Because the summer assizes were in Newcastle in around August and at the end of August is when they were hanged. So they did have this time in between for kind of a further trial process and um to decide what they're going to do. But they, they didn't go and find the witch finder or stop the hangings until afterwards. Yeah. It is very much like, well, just in case they are witches, we're just, and maybe this person was right, maybe they were wrong, but like, just the fact that she was sent off and on the same day her last victim was, was burned, yeah. Yeah. Because that, then... that was Scotland as well, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think the people listening to this know at the moment, but like, we didn't tend to burn witches at the stake like they did in Scotland. No, so in England, witchcraft was a felony alongside um, property theft as a, a crime as well. Yeah. Um, it was kind of on the same footing, whereas in Scotland it was kind of conceived of more spiritually and closer to heresy. So that's why burnings took place in Scotland. Mm-hmm. But even then, usually people in Scotland had their necks broken before they were burned. Um, live burnings were very rare. Yeah. Again, not a, a cheery subject. I feel like I'm saying like at least they were dead when they were burned. But it's, it's <laughs> no, we know what it, I mean. it is no, a distinction. Yeah, there there is a bit of a difference there between someone kind of being burnt alive and then being burnt after. Yeah, death. and um, it actually does tell us about how people um understood the witch's corpse as well. So the burning was we think it was actually more to do with um purifying. The remains and getting rid of the corrupted remains because there was an understanding that if a witch was buried in a churchyard then her flesh would corrupt the rest oh, okay. of the corpses so it was about kind of disposal and purification as well as the the spectacle of the burning we didn't quite have that in england though did we no no um like i say witches were just hanged alongside other criminals like in the newcastle um the executions in newcastle the witches were hanged alongside moss troopers, mm-hmm. which were a form of um, cattle rustlers or bandits operating along the borders. So it was about kind of the theft of sheep. Um, people executed alongside the alongside alleged witches had just stolen some sheep and, and some horses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maria's just taken aback. I'm just like, yeah. yes, I've heard this before. Maria's like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was there, could be wrong, was there nine? Nine mm-hmm. moss troopers, yeah. Yeah, so if you think about that, that was a large execution. Oh yeah, they had to build a special special gallows for it, mm-hmm. rather than the regular one at um, Gallows Hall near St James. And then, just to go back to the other female witch finder, um, they're normally just discussed as Mr Patterson, and again had a short-lived career, and weren't um, revealed to be a woman until... They were caught and executed. Mm-hmm. So they were executed. One was sent away. Yeah, one was sent away and we think that Patterson was executed because un- unlike um, John Balfour that we mentioned earlier that was just kind of told to stop, mm-hmm. um, Mr. Patterson had also um, fraudulently appeared to be a man as well. And so, that was a crime. Yeah, not normally... Not normally... Um, punishable by death um but because it was in the position of being a witch finder as well um i think it just kind of the charges added up for her i did find a quote and i was assuming it was about that john dick um saying that they were like a very feared and reputable witch finder was mm. was the one john dick running around or was there more than one because it's a bit well, this is where the records are a bit murky i was going to say things get irritating <laughs> so there's um a John Dick that was operating in the Highlands that might have been um, this Cadell or Caldwell John Dick, but there's also like John Dixon or John Dickinson. And we don't know if these are the one, one in the same or not, unfortunately. No, it's even when you look at the, the victims of the Newcastle trials, there's like 
free spellings, I think, of their names. Two yeah. to three spellings. And it's if you're looking at records, it's like, well, these two last names are very different. They just have the same first letter. Like mm. um, Matthew Bulmer or Baumer. There's like a few different... They're very different last names when you actually look at them. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm, I'm curious to know, sort of, the Witchfinder was such a... It's seemingly such an important role. They were doing this divine work um, on behalf of society. They were cleansing society of this great evil. Why is there so little information on them? Surely they would be sort of revered and respected that you would want to document who they were? So in the cases where we do have information, it often comes from the witchfinder themselves. So Matthew Hopkins, he wrote um, A Discovery of Witches in 1647. And that's sometimes seen as his kind of manifesto, in a sense, or his way of bragging. But I I think by this time it was a defence of his practices because he was starting to be suspected and caught out as a fraud himself. I'd say that as much as witchfinders were sought after, they weren't really celebrities um, in the same sense that we see now so they were just kind of part of the judicial machinery involved in prosecuting a witch at the time so with the exception of Matthew Hopkins publishing his own um his own text justifying his work as he was quickly being um criticized and suspected of fraud in 1647 we don't really have equivalents of witch finders wishing to publicise their trade outside of um, getting a bit more money in the next witch trial. But um, I think it's plausible that um, in some cases there was a bit of a cover-up happening. Oh, Um, a cover-up? Yeah. A conspiracy? Scandal. (laughs) Um, I think this is possible in the um, Newcastle case because um, the Newcastle witch trials happened so late into what we'd call the the timeline of English witchcraft happening on like the turn of 1649 to 1650. And then five years later, you have Ralph Gardner and his big expose of um, the way that Newcastle is being run and how corrupt it is to its very core and him using the the scandal of the fraudulent Newcastle witchfinder as an example of this. And we know kind of right after um, Gardner's text, England's Grievances Discovered, and then another like paragraph of title, as you have at this time. <laughs> um, we know that that text was being suppressed at the time. They were actively trying to stop the circulation of um, this kind of diatribe against the Newcastle Council. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility that the more detailed records that perhaps um, revealed who the Newcastle Witchfinder was, were conveniently lost. Right. As opposed to being lost centuries later. That was something I had wondered about before, because I just found it really odd that no one mentioned his name. Mm. And Joe Baff mentioned it as well in um, the first episode, was it might have been the same witch pricker in different parts of the North East as well. So the fact that it, everyone was just like, oh, that witch prick or the Scottish witch prick or, you know, various mm-hmm. kind of things along those lines. It was just like, why is no one saying his name? Yeah, so that's the thing. You can't really you can't really extract a single um, witch hunter, a single witchcraft outbreak from its background and understand it completely, that everything in early modern life, in the community... And the wider community, like other cases in the northeast at the time, was connected. So we we can't um, talk about the witch trials without talking about Gardner and his own biases and things like that. Yeah. So and the kind of wider pattern of um, witch hunting happening in the north of England, coinciding with a massive witch hunt outbreak in Scotland at the same time. Yeah. So so this is kind of around the time that um, witch finding is slowly fading from um, the the national imagination, I suppose. So there's not really as much time for a legacy to be formed, but also um, with the Ralph Gardner text and his kind of takedown of the Newcastle City Council when that came out in 1655, 
that was kind of immediately being suppressed. The councilman didn't want this text to be um, published and spread about the country. So it's kind of not really a massive leap of the imagination to suggest that maybe these records that might have contained the name of the witch finder were conveniently lost rather than damaged centuries later along the way. A cover-up. Exactly. Um, so it kind of worked that his identity was protected and lost to time. Um, but you see in kind of other cases in the region that Joe Bath might have, um, mentioned might have also involved the same witch finder, they also don't mention him by name. So there is almost a, a deliberate lack of discussion of him. It's a deliberate so, forgetting almost of, of the person. Yeah, yeah. So there's not really like the celebrity status that, again, people like Hopkins have um, to this day, this kind of um, bogeyman, pantomime villain figure didn't really exist at the time and wasn't applied to the Newcastle Witchfinder. And as much as I would love to know his name just out of curiosity, I'm kind of happy that he isn't really remembered, if that makes any sense. Almost like poetic justice for somebody who was so cruel and so evil that they murdered innocent people. Yeah, especially as a man that almost what well, might have set out to create a reputation. Yeah. It is satisfying in a sense that we don't know his name. And that's something that I did want to bring up to sort of interrogate why we're so interested in who the witchfinder is and perhaps like why other people have um claimed to have solved it. Mm-hmm. So um we mentioned at the beginning about like names and theories that do pop up. Um, two of the most irritating ones that pop up, um, for me anyway, are uh, Thomas Chauville and Cuthbert Nicholson. Yes. Some people just say that, oh, the witchfinder Cuthbert Nicholson, as everybody knows. Cuthbert Nicholson and Thomas Chauville were the two sergeants that were sent up into Scotland to get the witchfinder. We know who they were. We know that they weren't the witchfinders, but there seems to be this need to give him a name. And I think why we're so interested is related to this. Is It's a kind of Jack the Ripper-like infamy in yeah. a way. The fact that we don't know his identity is kind of what makes it an, a definitely morbid curiosity. Um, when obviously in both cases, the victims should be the focus. So we, we are lucky in a way that we do have the names of um, of the victims. We have little else, but we can memorialise them. Exactly. And I think when you look at the witch trials in England and Scotland as well, there are so many where, and I know this is like a definite thing in Scotland, it will say that they hanged like three witches or four witches, but it doesn't actually tell you their names. It's just mm-hmm. we hanged three or four women and it, you know nothing else about them except for the fact that three or four people were killed. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we even have the names is a lot more than a lot of other people in other places do have. Definitely. But I think that's not to say that... Um, it's not important to try and find out who the Newcastle Witchfinder was because it could help us understand the case in more detail, um, especially like the Anglo-Scottish connection, like um, that the region was so in touch with goings-on in Scotland that they knew to send for this guy, and it, um, this specific man. And it, it tells us that they did want a professional witchfinder. It wasn't this kind of mass panic. They we know from this that they had chosen an expert in his field. So they were wanting to... Get it right. Yeah, they wanted to get it right. They wanted to have evidence as evidence of which finding existed then. It is important to remember the victims. And it is. it would be nice to have the name, purely like you said, for the fact of we could maybe figure out a few things or... Mm-hmm. even figure out where he was or what he was doing or you know there's a lot there's a little bit more you can get off a name but mm-hmm. yeah it, it gives us the kind of same sense of poetic justice that you get um with the idea that he might have been caught up for his crimes yeah. um himself or similar to like Matthew Hopkins there's the like common rumor that he was um 
ducked as the witch and lynched. Yeah. Um, that kind of really took off as a rumour into the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and that is kind of more, in a way, a sense of justice or retribution than the real story that he, he just died in a cottage of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. So um, you can kind of see that sense of looking for a satisfying conclusion with the story. But sadly, not something you're going to get fully with the Newcastle witches. I think that was the biggest thing I wanted when I read about what happened to the witch finder. And I was like, oh, he got his justice. And then the more I looked into it, I was like, hang on. We don't actually know if this happened. And that's why I started looking for the name. Because mm. I was like, surely there's got to, we've got to have a record of one person who might have fit the description. But yeah. we didn't. It was almost like I wanted it to be confirmed that he did get, like he was... Like a like a retribution, I guess. Like yeah. he faced some kind of punishment for what mm. he did, but we'll probably not or ever know. If we do trust what Gardner says, and that there was, in a sense, a trial and a public hanging of him, you'd think that someone other than Gardner might have mentioned it somewhere. No. But no. <laughs> it's nowhere. Thank you for joining us today, Katie, and going over your suspects in your head, um, who this person might have been, but also just taking us through um witch pricking and all the little details of what we do know about the witch pricker which isn't a lot but we don't know a lot about these trials in general and that's what we're trying to discover and find out so thank you for joining us today and again thank you for all your initial help as well and passing everything over my way it's very greatly appreciated (laughs) no problem i'm excited to hear more of the podcast it's a great project and (laughs) There's lots to talk about, so you'll be keep going for a few episodes more. As you know, because you're definitely coming back for oh, yeah. um, episodes soon as well. So, yeah, as you definitely will know. Mm-hmm. Um, again, thank you. This episode is sponsored by Escape Key. Newcastle's multi-award winning escape rooms situated in the historic Gallowgate area of Newcastle. We had the pleasure of playing their immersive witch-themed escape room which is inspired by the events of the Newcastle Witch Trials of 1649-1650. You can book your escape today at www.escape-key.co.uk. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Newcastle Witches podcast. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. If you want to find out more about what we spoke about in this episode and past or future episodes, you can find us on social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter by searching for the Newcastle Witches podcast. And there's also a dedicated page linking and profiling the many guests we have on the podcast. It's candleandbell.com slash Newcastle Witches. Please feel free to ask us any questions or if there's anything you want to know more about, then just find us on our socials and we'll reply to you there. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Newcastle Witches podcast.